Chapter 26 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 26 Gerbert. Life. Gerbert was born in Aquitaine about the middle of the 10th century. He became a monk at the monastery of Aurillac, and there, according to Richer, a contemporary and disciple, he met the Count of Barcelona, with whom he went to Spain in order to study mathematics and the physical sciences. Thence, at the request of Otho II, he went to Rome. From Rome he went back to France, and in 991 became Archbishop of Reims. In 997 he was transferred to the See of Ravenna. In 999 he became Pope, taking the name of Sylvester II. He lived until 1003. Gerbert is credited with being the first to introduce the Arabic numerals into Christian Europe. He is said also to have constructed clocks and other mechanical contrivances. It was probably his acquaintance with astronomy and his success as a mechanical inventor that earned for him the reputation of magician. The legends collected and published by Benno in the 11th century represent Gerbert as in league with the devil. The less ignorant, however, among Gerbert's contemporaries, acknowledged him to be a pious monk and a man of extraordinary learning. Sources Mean, in his Patrologia Latina, volume 139, publishes the following works of Gerbert. Libellus de numerorem divisione, di geometria, di sfarae constrictione, and Libellus de rationale et ratione uti. Gerbert's letters were published by Masson in 1611 and republished by Duchesne in 1636. Richer's histories which throw so much light on the life and character of Gerbert, as well as on some important points of his doctrine, were first published by Pertz in the Momenta Germaniae. To these sources must be added a poem by Adelborough, published in the Patrologia Latina, volume 151, and a letter of Leo, abbot and papal legate, which is found in volume 139, of the Patrologia Latina. The work, Di Corpore et Sanguina Domini, attributed to Gerbert by Pertz and others, is of doubtful authenticity. An excellent monograph of the life and teaching of Gerbert is Monsieur Picouvet's Gerbert, un pape philosophe, Paris, 1897, from the Catholic University Bulletin, volume 4, pages 295 onwards, July 1898. Doctrines. Gerbert as a teacher. In the midst of the wars and other external circumstances, which combined to bring about a state of almost universal neglect of learning, Gerbert revived at the School of Reims the best traditions of the early days of the scholastic movement. He taught the dialectic of Aristotle, using a translation of the Categoriae, in addition to the Esagoge of Porphyry and the commentaries of Berthius, he also taught rhetoric, employing, it is said, 
a mechanical contrivance in order to express the different combinations of figures of speech. And in one of his letters he speaks of a sphere by means of which he illustrated the horizon and the beauties of the heavens. His work, Di Divisione Numerorum, shows that he occupied himself with the task of popularizing the theory of multiplication. Gerbert as a philosopher. 1. Richer, a contemporary and disciple of Gerbert, gives a most interesting description of an encounter which took place at Ravenna in the year 980 between Gerbert, master of the schools at Reims, and Otterick, the most famous of the masters of the German schools. The emperor, Otho II, and many distinguished prelates lent solemnity to the scene by their presence. Gerbert opened the discussion by defining philosophy as divinarum et huminarum rerum comprehensio veritatis, thus identifying philosophy with knowledge. Then he proceeded to divide philosophy into theoretical and practical. He further distinguished physics, mathematics and theology, theologia intellectibilis, as parts of theoretical philosophy, and moral, dispensativa, economic, distributiva, and political, civilis, philosophy as subdivisions of practical philosophy. After a discussion as to the place which physiology and philology should occupy in this classification of philosophical sciences, the disputants passed on to the question, what is the aim of philosophy? Gerbert answered that the final cause of philosophical study is a knowledge of things human and divine. In other words, that philosophy is, so to speak, its own reward. At this point, the argument veered round the Platonic account of the cause of the world. Next, the disputants took up the discussion of the cause of shadows, and when, at the close of the day's debate, the emperor put an end to the disputation, the question under discussion was whether mortal is to be subordinate to rational or vice versa, or, as we should say, whether the term mortal or the term rational has the greater extension. 2. The libellus et rationale et ratione uti, addressed to the emperor, takes up the problem of predication at the point where the oral discussion had been interrupted, and inquiries whether ratione uti should be predicated of rationale. It was a principle admitted by the dialecticians that the predicate should possess wider extension than the subject. Since, therefore, reasonable is of wider extension than using reason, is not Porphyry wrong when he says that using reason may be predicated of reasonable? Gerbert approaches the problem by stating the objections which may be urged from three sources, namely from the relation of power to act, from the relation of the accidental to the substantial, and from the relation of the higher concept to the lower. He then proceeds to elucidate these notions, determining the nature of act and power, thus using the objections in order to throw light on the problem, so that when he comes to the thesis that ratione uti may be predicated of rationale, he has no difficulty in proving his proposition, 
by the use of the concepts act, power, etc., on which the objections rested. This little treatise is, therefore, the first sample of the use of the scholastic method, which, a century later, was employed in Abelard's Sic et Non, and was perfected by the philosophers of the 13th century. It is by reason of its method, rather than of its contents, that the treatise occupies so important a place in the history of scholastic philosophy. 3. Adalbero, who was at one time a disciple of Gerbert at Reims, and who died in 1030, mentions in a poem addressed to Robert II of France certain theories concerning the origin of the universe, and adds, I found these things being not unmindful of what I have heard. If the theories in question are those of Gerbert, and it is natural to suppose that Adelbaro is speaking of his former teacher, it is evident that our philosopher did not confine his philosophical teaching to the problems of dialectic, but that he carried his inquiries into the region of cosmogony and anthropology. 4. The letter of Leo, the papal legate appointed to inquire into the rival claims of Gerbert and Arnulf to the Sea of Reims, bears further testimony to the many-sidedness of Gerbert's teaching. It implies that Gerbert included in his curriculum the study of nature and, perhaps, the study of animal life. This is all the more remarkable when we recall that Gerbert belonged to an age to which Aristotle's treatises on the natural sciences were completely unknown. Historical Position Gerbert must have exercised considerable influence on his own generation. The very grotesqueness of the notions which the superstitious entertained concerning him is proof of his preeminence. He is in the tenth century what Erigena was in the ninth, and what Abelard will be in the twelfth. His influence, however, was exercised by his oral teaching rather than by his written works. To his disciples, and to the masters who succeeded him in the schools of France, the dialectical movement, which was continued by Rosselin, Abelard, and St. Anselm, and by them transmitted to the 13th century, owes a larger debt than can be accurately determined. Chapter 27. The School of Ozaire. Eric, Hericus of Ozaire. Life. St. Eric, 841-881, question mark a monk of Saint-Germain of Auxerre, studied at Fulda, where he had for teacher Haimo, the successor of Rehabanus, and afterwards at Ferrières, where Servatus Lupus, who was also a disciple of Rehabanus, was at that time master. After returning to Auxerre, Eric became master in the monastic school of that place, and under his guidance the school became one of the most renowned in all France. Sources Aurier has shown that the marginal glosses found in manuscript number 1108 of the National Library of Paris are the work of Eric. The manuscript contains the Categoriae Decem, falsely attributed to St. Augustine, the Perihermenias of Aristotle, the Isagoge of Porphyry, and several works of Berthius. Naturally, therefore, the glosses added by Eric deal almost exclusively with logical or dialectical problems. In addition to this document, Aurier 
mentions a poem by Eric on the life of Saint-Germain, to which the author attached, as a marginal note, an extract from Erigena's treatise, Di Divisione Naturo. The poem was published by Mean, Patrologia Latina, volume 129. Doctrines. Eric affirms with Aristotle and Berthius that the concept is the image of the object, while the word is the expression of the concept. Ren concipit intellectus, intellectum vocis designant, vocis autem literae significant. With regard to the universal, generic and specific concept, he expresses himself as follows. Genus non praedicare di animali, secundum rem, id es substantium, sed designativum esse nomen animalis quo designatur animal duploribus specie differentibus dici, namque neque rationem animalis potest habere genus, cum dicitur animal est substantia animata et sensibilis, similiter neque species dicitur de homine secundum, id quod significat, sed juxta iliud quod de numero differentibus praedicatur. This passage indicates a departure from the realistic view and a leaning towards the nominalism which appeared in a more definitive form in the 11th century. In a similar spirit, Eric accounts for the collocation of individual things in genera and species, and even in the highest genus, Usia, in Eric's glosses there are several indications of an acquaintance with the writings of Erigena. His doctrines may be described in general as a protest against the extreme realism of his predecessor. Remy of Auxerre, Life St. Remy, Remigius, of Auxerre, was a monk in the abbey of Saint-Germain of Auxerre. He had for teacher Eric of Auxerre and Servetus Lupus. After the death of Eric, he taught at Auxerre, Reims and Paris. At the last-mentioned school he had for disciple Otho of Cluny. He died in 904. Sources Beside a theological treatise entitled Enarationis in Samos, we possess Rimmer's glosses on the grammatical works of Priscian and Donatus and a dialectical commentary entitled Commentum Magistri Remigii Super Librum Martiani Capelli di nuptis mercuriae et philogiae et supersemptum artis liberalis. As a secondary source, we have the biography of Otho of Cluny by the monk John. Doctrines From the commentary on Martianus Capella, it appears that Remy attempted to reconcile the extreme realism of Erigema with the anti-realism of Eric. Martianus Capella had defined genus as multarum formarum per unum nomen complexio. Erigena, on the contrary, had defined it as multarum formarum substantialis unitas. The definition given by Remy is evidently a compromise. Genus est complexio, id est adelectio et comprehensio multarum formarum. Remy seems to have occupied himself with the problem of the world of ideas, the ideas, he maintained, 
exist in an invisible sphere hidden in the mind of God. Per sphaerum, Martianus, vult intelligi mundum, invisibilum, qui in mente dei latebat, antiquatum iste visibalis, perverias producteratur causas. Quem mundum, id est invisibilum, philosophy vocant ideas, id est formas. Associated with the school of Ozaire is the unknown author of another commentary on Martianus Capella. This commentary, on account of the frequent occurrence of Greek words, is judged by some to be the work of an Irish monk. Mention must also be made of a work entitled Glosses on the Isagoge of Porphyry, discovered by Cousin, and by him assigned to the ninth century. Both Cousin and Aurea attribute the work to Rahabanus Morius, Prantl, Kolish, and Stockel are of an opinion that it should be assigned to a pupil of Rahabanus, who is called Iepa. On the question of universals, the author of the glosses propounds certain realistic principles which approach more closely to what afterwards became known as Thomistic realism than do any of the tenets of the other dialecticians of the ninth or tenth centuries. Genus et species substitunt alio modo, intelliguntur alio, et sunt incorporale, sed sensibilibus juncta substitunt, insensibilibus, et tunc est singulare, intelliguntur ut ipsa substantia, ut non in aliis esse suum habentia, et tunc est universale. Retrospect. During the ninth and tenth centuries, the philosophy which formed part of the general intellectual movement, inaugurated by the foundation of the schools, was still in its beginnings. Here and there different springs gave rise to different streams of thought, but it was not until the following century that these streams began to flow in a common channel, and the philosophy of the schools, uniting all its tributaries, took a definite course, the direction of which may be easily traced. Rahabanus, Erigena, Gerber, and the monks of Osea are practically independent of one another, yet each in his own way exhibits the essential traits of the scholastic, vague and ill-defined as these traits are, when compared with the characteristics of the scholasticism of the 13th century. All of these philosophers agree in maintaining that there is no contradiction between philosophy and theology. They hold that dialectic should be applied to the great problems of human thought, and they all attempt, on a more or less restricted scale, to make faith reasonable. Scholasticism in the ninth century draws the first rough sketch of what scholasticism in the thirteenth century will be. This period is generally described as an age of blind realism, but it is far from being so. True it is that Erigena's philosophy, the most ambitious constructive attempt of the ninth century, is based on the realistic concept of the universe, but it must be remembered that Erigena's realism did not go uncontradicted. And while Eric Remy and the author of the glosses did not succeed in finding the formula best fitted to express the doctrine of moderate realism, they refused with unmistakable emphasis to accept the ultra-realistic concept. It was through the storm and stress of the age of Rosalind and Abelard 
that moderate realism struggled to be an adequate expression. In that age, too, there first appeared rationalism, which, in a sense to be subsequently explained, is regarded by Cardinal Gonzalez as an essential phase of the scholastic movement. The occasion of the extraordinary intellectual activity of the second period of scholasticism was the problem of universals. End of chapter 27